Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. Thank you, Pastor John. I can't tell you enough, New Life, what a privilege it is for the Garner household to be here with you this morning and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, John, I'm so thankful for your passionate leadership, your love for Jesus. I'm thankful for the way that uh, you lead your home and love your wife. Uh, It was a joy just catching up last night at dinner together, uh, as I'm sure you enjoyed for the first time in a long time, a meal away from all those kids. But just being able to catch up and hear about the work that God is doing here is so encouraging. Uh, The last time I was here was several years ago. We spoke at a youth thing we had, and uh, I remember coming across the hill thinking that that building wasn't there the last time I was here. And so, man, God is active and alive among his people. And on behalf of Sarah and myself, we just want to say Thank you for the kind hospitality. I think I've been welcomed by over 100 people this morning uh, and counting, and uh, your love for the Lord is contagious. I have a question this morning for you that really isn't a question I'm asking. It's a question that Jesus is asking. It's one that he poses for his disciples in Mark chapter 8. I'll briefly cover that question, but here in a moment we'll actually be in Colossians chapter 1 for the majority of the morning, but it's a question It's simply this, who do you say that Jesus is? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and I love how he'll from time to time just throw out a question. It's a great mode of discipleship. He wants feedback, and the question is this, who do people say that I am? And and in response, they say, well, some say you're Elijah, others say you're one of the prophets, some say you're John the Baptist. Jesus, you know, responds in a beautiful way. He takes something general, this general question of who do people say that I am, okay, and he moves more specific. Okay, we're in Arkansas, so this is an appropriate analogy. He's moving from a shotgun to a sniper rifle, okay? So he just kind of throws a question in the air, some bird shot, all right? Now he's honing in on their hearts, And he asked them this question, a question that all of us in this room are going to have to answer, if not today, then before him one day. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter being Peter, you got to love him. First one out the boat, trying to chop people's ears off. He's the kid in class who always has the answer to the question. He says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. In other words, you're the chosen one, the anointed one. You're the one who's come to rescue us. Jesus tells them, you've you've judged correctly. Now, don't say anything to anyone about this. And so in this little incident, in this little moment, rather, you see Peter seemingly gets the answer to the question right. But Jesus continues to teach in the next passage on why the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of men. Peter doesn't like this. He says, I won't let that happen. And Jesus has an interesting response to Peter. He says, get behind me, 
Satan. Satan? What do you mean Satan? He's one of the disciples. Peter walked on water. Four verses earlier, he just got the answer right. You're the Christ. Why would Jesus call him Satan? You see, Peter got the answer right. But even demons get the answer right. You see, Peter assumed that he was the Messiah. He'd come to rescue them. But I think Peter thought that Jesus came to rescue them from Roman oppression. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I've come to rescue you from yourself. I think that's a word that all of us need to hear this morning. Because I think it's very easy for us to take this Jesus that we know about formally, but completely miss him functionally and what he wants to do in your heart. I think so often we're eager for God to work through us, and there's nothing wrong with that. In about six days, I'm about to lead a mission trip of 25 people into the Amazon jungle. And I have people so eager to want to be used by God and for God to work through them. But can I tell you something? Sometimes God wants to work in you. And, and, and sometimes, I think it's, it's even more potent for God to work in us than for God to work through us. And this morning, I think the way he wants to do that is to pose the same question to you. Who is Jesus to you? What I love about this church is it elevates the word of God. Week in and week out. New life, this probably isn't news to you, but the Bible is supremely about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about you, it's not about me. It's supremely about Jesus. It's a compilation of 66 books told through the lens of six different genres. You have the Old Testament, which outlines the historical narrative of God's grand design for his people, and it shows us how to live in the midst of a holy God. And then it prophesies of a coming king. And then you transition into the New Testament, and it gives us the accurate account of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The letters in the New Testament explain the theology behind the work of Christ. It yields for us these tangible instructions on how we're supposed to live. What does the church look like? What does God want from us? Every time I wake up and my feet hit the ground, every part of Scripture testifies about Jesus, either who he is or what he's done. From cover to cover, he is the centerpiece of civilization. Luke chapter 24 affirms this much. Jesus, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Did you catch that? How about John chapter 5? Jesus says, regarding the scriptures, it is these that bear witness to me. Even in Acts chapter 8, Philip preached Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch from the book of Isaiah. But in all the Bible's teachings about Jesus, there's probably none more significant than Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to land this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. Here in a moment, I'll read verses 15 through 20. Uh, I read out of the ESV translation. I know there's many translations out there, okay? You, you rock with the NIV, the, the KJV, the NKJV, the, the AT&T, the KFC, whatever it is. 
that you have this morning. Just know that we're reading out of God's Word together. I think this powerful passage is going to clear up any confusion over the identity of who Jesus is. Exactly who he is. If there's any lingering doubt about his nature, it's about to be cleared up this morning by the Word of God. And I would contend that these few verses are vital to a healthy understanding of the Christian faith because it shows us that Jesus is supreme. Now, supreme, namely, highest in rank, first in order, of the utmost significance, the highest level of importance. That's what it means to be supreme. We sang that last song, Worthy is the Lamb. He's worthy because he's supreme. He should take the first place in our hearts. And because he's supreme, he should have all of us. He's worthy of our praise. Because of who he is, our lives are affected at every level. Your marriage, your kids, your job, your friendships, your hobbies, the sphere of influence that God has placed you in. All of our lives are affected because of who he is. And he's not just deserving of our hearts, new life. He's after them this morning. C.S. Lewis described his salvation this way. He said, the hound of heaven ran me down. And I just... I just want to put this out there. I think God's running some of you down right now. And can I just tell you, he'll do whatever it takes to win you back. He wants to show you how great, how mighty and transcendent he is. But at the same time, he wants to show you how good and how gracious and how loving he is. I believe that as his bride, Jesus is pursuing us this morning and he's doing it through his word. I think if we genuinely see him as supreme, we're going to enjoy him the way that he intended. So to clear up any confusion about who Jesus is and to essentially motivate the church in their faith, Paul wrote the following six verses as a theological cornerstone of the Christian faith. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and I actually would like to invite you if you don't mind, to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word together. The Bible says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. This passage breaks down God's character in his relation to two entities. There's two stanzas in this passage. The first stanza shows us Christ's relationship to creation. 
The second stanza will shift towards Christ's relationship to his church. And as we walk through this passage, I want to begin in verse 15 of two descriptions that we see of Jesus. First, he is the image of the invisible God. It's fascinating to begin this way. Think about it. The first thing the Bible wants you to think about when you think about Jesus is God. The Greek word for image, the image of the invisible God, is the word akon. It's not the rapper, students, okay? But from that word akon, we actually get our word icon, referring to a statue. It's also used in Matthew 22, where it references Caesar's portrait on a coin, that icon of Caesar, of Caesar, that image of the emperor embedded onto the coin. And although man is the icon of God, man's not a perfect image of God. We don't carry his attributes, such as being all-knowing or all-powerful or everywhere at all times. Why? Because we're human. We're not divine. Here's what this means. Jesus Christ, however, is the perfect, absolutely accurate image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 is a parallel passage. In verse 3, it tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. Philippians 2, 6 says he's in the very form of God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So what we see here is that in Christ, in the person of Christ, through Jesus, this is the main idea of this verse, the invisible God has become visible. The transcendent God, who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, has become imminent. Second, you see that Jesus is described as the firstborn of all creation. Now, at first glance, it almost seems as if it reads, born first. Well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. One of the prerequisites to be God is that you've always existed. So you couldn't really be born first. That was actually one of the first heresies in the early church, is that he was a created being. Modern-day proponents of this belief would be Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll deny that Jesus was God. They'll actually seek support from this verse to try and prove it. They'll actually alter their religious texts to fit this agenda. They argue that the, the Bible here says that Jesus is born first in creation and that he's a created being. So if he's a created being, then he can't be the eternal God. But they've misunderstood the surrounding context. I had a professor at Washita Baptist University, where I got my undergrad. He's now the chair of the Greek department at Denver Seminary, and this one phrase is the only thing I remember from his classes. <laughs> I got my degree, so clearly I must have passed his class, but this is the one thing I took away. He said, every text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Now, when I heard that, I didn't know what he was talking about. But he said it like 85 times that semester. And over time, I've begun to see what he was trying to communicate. 
You can't just pick and choose verses you like to fit your agenda. God's word will affirm God's word. And it's important for us to understand what's happening around the passage, around the chapter, around the book, around that testament, around the entire Bible, because it all speaks to each other. So what that means is this translation could mean, in a literal sense, firstborn chronologically. It could, like Luke chapter 2, which says when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. But that's not the case here. Firstborn here is used figuratively, and it refers to a position or a rank. In the Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the one given the right to inheritance. But he he wasn't necessarily the first one born. Like in Genesis, although Esau was born first, it was Jacob who was the firstborn and received the inheritance. Israel was called God's firstborn in Exodus 4. They weren't the first people ever born, but they held first place in God's sight over all the nations. In Psalm 89, verse 27, it speaks about David, where it says, and I will make him my firstborn. Okay, we know the Bible. If you don't, let's just have a little quick down memory lane. David wasn't the first one born in his family. Matter of fact, when Samuel showed up to anoint the next king, he asked Jesse, you have any more boys? He's like, these are my pride stock, all seven of them. They'll knock the tar out of you. They're big and strong and handsome. He's like, you don't have anybody else? Well, I got that shepherd boy. He's kind of ugly. He's a runt and he smells. He doesn't have any friends. Samuel says, let me see him. Samuel sees him and says what? He's the next king. And he's talking about David, the eighth one born. But Samuel says what? I will make him the highest over all the kings of the earth. So firstborn here is referring to rank. This passage is also a foreshadow of the Messiah in Psalm 89. I will make him the highest over all the kings in the earth. Because God would make Jesus, the firstborn of creation, highest over all the kings. This is why the Bible says he holds the hearts of kings in the palms of his hand. Here's the main idea. Firstborn clearly means the highest in rank, not the first one created. Therefore, Jesus is the supreme being in all of creation. Let's keep reading. You can go to the next verse. Verse 16 gives us a more detailed description of this truth. Everything that's been created through him and for him. I mean, if you reject the premise in verse 15 that it means highest in rank, then your argument would fall short if you got to the next verse. I mean, it's like the verse is saying, you want to know why he's the highest in rank? Because he's the creator. I mean, all you have to do is follow the logic. To say that Jesus is a created being who then goes on to create everything, well, that would be a logical fallacy. It just doesn't compute. And this, is, this is who Jesus is. Verses 16 and 17 show us three distinct truths about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the creator of everything. Everything, Paul? Yep, everything. And he goes through the list. Even the authorities, and not just the earthly ones, like he controls the courthouse in Saline County. That's not what he's referencing. He says even the spiritual authorities, even demons, Satan himself, 
Ephesians 6 says, he has dominion over the rulers and authorities in this present darkness. Why would God go to the great lengths to include such a precise detail? I'll tell you why. Because he wants you to know who runs the show. That's why. He's that guy. He's him. He wants you to know exactly who he is. For absolutely everything in creation has been made by him. Things seen and the unseen. The tangible, the metaphysical. Shoot, even Deuteronomy 29 says even the secret things belong to the Lord. You might ask, what are the secret things? I don't know. They're a secret. (laughs) Psalm 19, the first four verses. Even creation testifies to his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night by night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Even creation cries out to the glory of God because Jesus is the creator. Number two, Jesus is eternal. When the universe began, he already existed. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Revelation 22 describes Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Psalm 90, verse 2, says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he says, of his sovereign rule, there is no end. Our finite minds can't even begin to comprehend that truth. Like, If he's God, and he's the creator, and he's eternal, you know what that means? It means he didn't just become God at his birth in Luke chapter 2 that we love to read every December 24th. He's always been God. So that, that means Jesus was present at creation. Which means when he opened his mouth and said, let there be light, darkness was eradicated at 186,000 miles per second. Because he was present at creation. God existed before the heavens and the earth were made, new life. And guess what? He will exist long after they've been destroyed. Number three, Jesus is the sustainer. The Bible says here, in him all things hold together. In other words, not only did he create the universe, guess what? He also sustains it. Psalm 54 says, Behold, God is my helper, the sustainer of my soul. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, church, every 24 hours, the earth rotates on its axis. Every 28 days, the moon revolves around the earth, and each 365 days, the earth revolves around the sun. Our solar system contains nine planets, and students, Pluto's a planet. I don't care what they've told you in the last 10 years. (laughs) It contains 54 moons, thousands of comets, asteroids, and meteors, and God keeps all of it in such precise motion that men can send a ship to the moon and back because he sustains it. I'll never forget the time I felt like my life was falling apart. It was a day that will live in infamy for a preteen boy. 
It was the day I rode my first roller coaster that went upside down. Now, here's the deal. There's a stark difference between a roller coaster and one that goes upside down. I mean, roller coasters in and of themselves are fast and jerky and fun, but to go upside down when you've never done it, there's a natural fear. They call that death. (laughs) Because basically, what you fear is falling out, that somehow that cute little lap band is not going to hold you in place. But when your friend asks you as a ignorant preteen who is insecure in his identity, you ever ridden this before? You say, yeah. He's like, let's go ride it. I'm like, sounds good. And I'm dying inside. <laughs> I'm at Six Flags in Dallas. He goes, let's, go, let's ride that one. I say, what's that one called? He says, that's called the shockwave. I said, okay, that sounds shocking. What does that mean? But I can't ask him that. I pretend like it's no big deal. And we get, on, we get up, up in the line, and he says, there's only one way to ride a roller coaster like this. You know that, right? I'm like, yeah. No. He says, in the front. <laughs> Great, so I can be the first one to see death. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> so we get in, and I'm not comforted by the 14-year-old with braces who presses the red button and laughs at you as you slowly go past him. And he says, don't die. And I'm convinced that roller coasters do this on purpose. There's a noise that's created to strike that fear in you because we begin the slow ascent to death. And all I hear over and over is that noise. And I don't like it, but I'm in it and I I have to endure it. And I look down and I see that little lap band that is a few inches off my thigh. And if you're like me, you don't like there to be a gap between your body and the lap band. You want that pressed firmly against your body. So I do what anybody would do. I press down to try and lock it in place. Poof, it opens. (laughs) There's no cameras. No one stops the coaster for me. We're still climbing, and I'm literally Elsa. I'm frozen in fear, and I don't know what to do next. I look at my friend, and he's spitting over the edge at somebody off the coaster, having the time of his life, and I elbow him in the ribcage, and he turns around and sees me and screams, and together we scream, and he goes, what are you going to do? And I go, hopefully I don't die, and so I put my leg on his side of the coaster. He goes, no, 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 before you do that, try it one more time. I'm like, you're right, you're right. It opens. My leg on his side, our arms locked together. I threw my head down like this. I don't know why, I just did. (laughs) And we reach the top, and we go around, and we come down. And that first loop we come over, I fell. I'm just kidding, I didn't fall out of the coaster. I didn't fall. Nobody taught me as a boy about centripetal force and how that keeps me in precise motion. And I finished that coaster, and I think to myself, that was awesome. Let's do it again, right? No conscience for an 11-year-old. But I'll never forget that time feeling like my life was falling apart, but without knowing it, God was holding me together. And I think some of us this morning, maybe not in joking fashion, might feel like our life is falling apart. Maybe you feel that way. I just want you to know that you're seen. God sees you and you're not alone. God's telling you today, he is the substance that holds you together. This is a biblical promise. You, you notice right after this verse, there's a shift. 
There's a shift from stanza one of his relationship to creation now to his relationship to the church. And in verse 18, it says, Jesus is the head of the body. There's a lot of metaphors to describe the church in the Bible. It's called a family, a kingdom, a vineyard, a flock, and a bride. But the most profound metaphor is the church as a body and Christ is the head. The concept of head isn't referencing some kind of position like that guy's the CEO, so he's in charge. It's referring to the church not as an organization, but as a living, breathing organism. And Christ is the head who breathes life and direction into everything we do. It reminds me of that great theological award-winning film, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. When Tula says, the man is the head. But the woman is the neck, and the woman turns the head any way she wants, right? I think in this case, what we're seeing is this. Ephesians 1 describes for us that God made Christ head over all things for the church, which is his body. This metaphor is communicating the uniqueness and the importance of Christ in the life of a believer, As the glory of God covers the waters of the earth, so should the love of Christ permeate our entire being. It should affect our marriage. Men, that means if he permeates your entire being, you lay your life down. Church, if he permeates your entire being, it means we're serving and giving in the church. He gets our first. He gets our best. It means when Cody gets up and says we have a need, the church meets that need. We need 92 people. We get 94. It means means he consumes us in such a way that when we parent, we do so in gentleness and grace, not to exasperate our kids. In our friendships, in our community, in our life groups, it it means that we are characterized by love and sacrifice. If Jesus is supreme and he consumes all of us, that means he affects our work. I work to the glory of God. But work is not my identity. My worth is not in my work. This is what it means for him to consume us. And you read on to verse 20, you see reconciliation is now possible. That's big news. Reconciliation is now possible because of his bloodshed on the cross. We used to walk step in step in the garden with him. And all of Scripture it seems to be this giant effort to get back to the garden, to get back to the way that things were. But we couldn't do it. Sin separated us. There was this twisted cycle over and over where we just couldn't get close to him because our sin had affected that at every level. But now, now it's made possible because he who knew no sin, Jesus, the supreme being, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So so get this. Here's what he's showing us this morning, church. Jesus made it all, and then Jesus paid it all. He's not just a great God. He's also a good God. We want this truth of who Jesus is to deepen our love for him in such a way that it permeates everything we do, everything we say. Like We should leave here each week looking a little different than when we first walked in as a result of meeting with a good and gracious God. Because here's the deal. The whole Bible is about Jesus. 
Not just Colossians 1. Not just Luke 2, where he's a cute baby. Which, by the way, that story is actually an act of war more than anything else. The whole Bible is about Jesus. From cover to cover, God has gone to imaginable lengths to show you just how great and just how good he is. Think about this. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the great high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he's salvation's choice. In Judges, he's the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our faithful prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is sovereign. And of his infinite rule, there is no end. In Ezra, he's the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and shattered dreams. In Esther, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, he's our timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he is our morning cry. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. In Proverbs, he's wisdom's choice. In Ecclesiastes, he's the time and the season. In Song of Solomon, he's a lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet, begging for his people to repent of their sins and turn to him. In Lamentations, he's the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, he's the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he's forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, he's the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he is our peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he's pleading for revival. He is mighty to save. In Haggai and Zechariah, he restores our lost heritage, and he is a fountain of life bursting forth in your soul. And Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. And Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. And Mark, he's the son of man. And Luke, he's the son of God. And John, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through Jesus. And Acts, he's the Spirit's power. In Romans, he's the grace of God. In Corinthians, he mends our division. In Galatians, he is our freedom, breaking us from the, the chains of sin. In Ephesians, he's the head of the church. In Philippians, he's our joy. In Colossians, guess what? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is supreme. In Thessalonians, he's our coming king. First and second Timothy, he's our faithful pastor. And Titus and Philemon, he is our mediator. In Hebrews, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than angels. He's greater than all the prophets. He's greater than the entire sacrificial system. Want to know why? Because he is the sacrificial lamb. In James, he is just. In first and second Peter, he is our rock. In first, second, and third John, he is love. And the only reason any of us know what love is is because he first loved us. In Jude, oh, that we would contend for the faith that he gave us. And in Revelation, the Bible says one day he's coming back on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood and his name tatted across his ribcage, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Lord of Lords and he is the great I Am. And he's here this morning to show you, church, that's exactly who he is. So now the question is put back on us once again. Who is Jesus to you? Do you just know him formally because you've memorized some verses and you've come to church to check the box off the list? Or has he functionally consumed every portion of your soul? Does he permeate, permeate your pores? Does he affect your relationships? Does he affect your speech? Because if you know who he is, then he does. We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website at newlifebaptist.faith.